Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for joining me on today's episode entitled March for Our Lives. As most of you are aware, as regard to the Valentine's Day massacre that took place and also referred to as the Parkland shootings, most of us have been inundated about the issue of gun violence in America. Today's episode will not revisit many of the issues that most of us already know that are subject to debate. Rather, we want to talk about the importance and the significance of the March for Our Lives event that will take place throughout America on Saturday, March 24th. Events will be held in cities like Washington, D.C., New York, California, Georgia, and, of course, in the state of Florida. Today, I want to talk about four areas. What happens when the First Amendment conflicts with the Second Amendment? The second is protest that engages politics versus politics that demands participation and when participation and politics impedes progress. As most of us know, gun violence in America is not limited to the mass shootings that took place in Florida. We send our condolences out to the 17 families that suffered as a result of their children being victims of the shooting, but also to the tens of thousands of Americans who die every single year in and as a result of gun violence. We know that most of the urban communities and inner city communities are adversely impacted by homicide gun violence. We know that most white families in America are adversely impacted by suicide as a result of gun violence. And so while the focus seems to be upon mass shootings and school safety, it is my hope and prayer that March for Our Lives will save all lives that have been lost as a result of gun violence. The First Amendment allows for us to engage in free speech, and it says that we have the right to assemble. But what we have before us now in the coming weeks is where that First Amendment right seems to conflict with the Second Amendment argument of one's rights to bear arms. And what I'm hoping that the March for Our Lives will do is to balance that conversation and allow for these, our children, to take a stand in protest and engage in a nonpartisan and a nonviolent demonstration that says to the world that they are sick and tired of living in fear. They are sick and tired of knowing that on any given day in America, when they are engaged in their daily task of going to school, that they may be the subject of a murder. And that the person who is exercising their quote unquote Second Amendment right to bear arms may very well be someone who should not under any circumstances bear arms. But the bigger argument also becomes one of due process and Fifth Amendment because Some of the demands that are being made would allow for an individual to give information about him or her that might result in them being denied an opportunity to bear arms. And so the question begs, if an individual voluntarily seeks mental health services and and they're not deemed to suffer any psychiatric problems or any other type of mental illness, Should that person, just because they have a history of seeking some form of mental counseling, be denied the right to bear arms? What about an individual who has had a past history that may have involved an act of criminality? 
should that individual be denied the right to bear arms and to protect his or her family in the event that they overcome the barriers or collateral consequences associated with their criminality after they have served their debt to society, if you will. These are a lot of constitutional issues that we have to examine as we move forward in determining what type of changes, if any, needs to be made as we decide, if you will, what needs to be done about gun violence. Sometimes in taking a proactive step toward ending gun violence, we basically move the petroleum all the way either to the left or to the right. And in doing so, there are rights that become trampled or infringed. We have the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. We have a 14th Amendment right to due process. And so if I complete an application and merely because this individual has been the subject of an arrest or conviction in their past, is that in and of itself a precursor to determine whether they will use a gun violently, particularly if they were engaged in a nonviolent crime? If an individual has or becomes subject to mental health counseling voluntarily, you have individuals that go through divorces, they become depressed. You have individuals that struggle through school, they become depressed. We have a lot of children that are taking different forms of medication, everything from Depakote to Seroquel to Neurotin and a whole list of Schedule One and Schedule Two drugs to treat different types of illnesses or pain associated with car accidents and other types of injuries that might result in their mental capacity being challenged. Are those measures enough in and of themselves to deny a person the right to bear arms? How do we honestly and earnestly seek to control gun violence in this country without trampling upon the constitutional rights and safeguards that are afforded to every citizen? When the Second Amendment comes in conflict with the First Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, and the Fourteenth, and in some regards, the Tenth Amendment, what must we do about it? That's just something for the listening audience to think about. Protests engages politics. There are many who are upset and offended by the actions of our youth from Parkland, Florida, that have led to a nationwide demonstration. And there are many from across the world that will engage them to support them. And I think that every single one of us should do that. Protestation has always been the fundamental groundwork that leads to making change. And my support of March for Our Lives is as long as it remains both nonpartisan and nonviolent, then their protests should be supported by all of us, regardless of our social, economical, or political affiliations. Protest engages political outcomes because it says to our leadership, we are asking for change. And in some regards, we are demanding change. And while many of us may not be the type that hold up signs and walk around shouting and screaming, let us not, let us not, let us not deter our youth from engaging and being proactive to bring about change. Politics demands participation. Politics demands participation. What our youth are doing on tomorrow and what they have done with their walkout that accounted for 17 minutes to account for every life that was taken in the Parkland Valentine's Day Massacre patient. We must encourage them 
to participate. Politics demands participation. If you expect any form of change, any type of legislative change, enactment of law, you must participate. And you can't simply do it when it comes time to go to the ballot. This is literally becoming a question of the ballot or the bullet, but not in the same regard. Because in this stance, these children are saying, before we go to the ballot, we want to make sure that we have politicians who have engaged us and know what matters to us. And right now, it's how people are using bullets and how they're engaging in mass shootings that are resulting in the lives that are being lost. And respectfully, not just at Parkland. Every single day from urban America, the streets of Chicago, Newark, Philly, Atlanta, Compton, Miami, Houston, Dallas, Minnesota, St. Louis. I can go on and on and on, regardless of your race, gender, ethnicity, nationality, or your religious belief. Someone in your family or affiliated with you personally or professionally has been adversely impacted by gun violence, be it homicide which adversely impacts the African-American and Latino community, or suicides, which are more prevalent among white families. What must we do to control it? Accountability and responsibility is critical. And we know that politicians alone can't do it. So the participation is from the manufacturers to the parents. We are raising the children and or persons responsible for mass shootings and homicides. We are raising the children that we send to school who eventually become the shooters of mass shootings. What are we teaching them about the value of life that no protestation in the world can cure? How do we raise children who eventually become adolescents and then adults? who eventually put a gun in their hand and devalue lies and have no problem taking them. And that is not something that a politician can morally legislate, nor can a judge engage in activism. These are things that individual families must address. Why in America do we fall prey to gun violence? Why in America are we more likely than not to push forth this issue of the right to bear arms? Why do we believe that we have to protect our family? And for what? And from whom? Because on both sides of the spectrum, regardless of what lens you are viewing it through, you will find that whether you're the victim or the criminal, you have to question who parented that criminal? How did they get to that point where they devalued lives? And how did this individual become a victim? What do we do to make sure that children in America and all people in America no longer become victims of gun violence? One of the first steps is a march. If you leave it through the lens of our children who are demanding that we take action to help them save their lives. 18 and 2018, 18 and 2018, 
was the slogan that we at the African American Juvenile Justice Project started in an effort to get those who will be 18 and 2018 registered to vote. The population that is engaging and the protestation will be 18 years of age. Many of those are future voters. They are not simply individual children who have no voice. They have a voice and they have a vote, and we must acknowledge it. But I say to all individuals, regardless of your background, you need to be participating with the March for Our Lives in some shape, form, or fashion. If you're not physically able to march and protest or for whatever reason do not believe in it, that opinion is respected. But what might you do in terms of allowing for or financing other children to get there? Maybe making sure that these children have warm blankets and coats or that they can eat. I have been the first to say to the African-American community, you must participate. This is not simply about mass shootings. And yes, I said that. It's not simply. That doesn't reduce the mass shootings, but it says it's also bigger than just mass shootings. This is about the day-to-day lives that are taken as an actual and approximate cause of gun violence. So it is a simple message to stop the gun violence. But it's bigger than that because they're also demanding that the government becomes accountable and responsible for who is allowed to manufacture guns and how those manufactured guns end up in the hands of those who use them for mass shootings. But beyond that, I also hope in my sincerest prayer is that we will hear speeches that give direct statements to parents about raising a children and a generation who, for whatever the reason, devalues lives and that the parents are being held accountable and responsible as much as they're looking to the government to do. On the contrary, the government does not raise our children. What happens when participation and politics impedes progress? What we are seeing happen as we lead into the hours of March 24th for the protest that will take place, March for Our Lives, is the politics associated with individuals who are wanting to steal the topic, the subject, the importance or significance, if you will, of the essence of this protestation. This is not about Donald Trump. This is not about a specific senator or members of Congress. This is not about the right or the left. This is about the lives of all children. And for those who are participating but are playing politics, you are impeding progress. Because when you use this platform to encourage these children to denounce a sitting president, no matter what we think Donald Trump has or hasn't done and his capacity as the 45th president, if we know the history of gun violence in America or even look to issues like Sandy Hook and San Bernardino, San Bernardino and the Colorado in Aurora, Illinois movie shooting, 
and the Las Vegas shooting, we know that well before there was a President Donald Trump and the 45th president, that there were shootings for every president before him. And I hate to say this, if we're not careful, there will be shootings for whomever will be the 46th, 47th, and 48th president. And so if we focus on the sitting president and we encourage these children to denounce and disrespect our sitting president, the world will be watching, and it will be that very same tone that creates the atmosphere that leads to mass shootings in America. Mark my words. When I say that, I mean this. If you're teaching our children that it is okay to disrespect authority and have no respect for authority, those children eventually become adults, and those young adults eventually become the very same people who, even at 17 and 18 and 19 and 21, possess a firearm. And those individuals become the very same individuals who walk into a school or step up on a school bus or go into a mall or a movie theater or at a concert and pulls the trigger. Everything that we teach these youth participating in March for Our Lives will set the tone and the stage for the momentum that will follow. And we want to be very careful about the message that we send about respect, authority, and about understanding politics and about using politics to demand participation and how their protests will engage politics. We want to be mindful that as we move forward towards Saturday, March 24th, that the tens of thousands of people that will appear in Washington, D.C. before the edifice that defines democracy, justice, free speech, and equality, that those principles are honored and respected, and that these children will go forth in a nonpartisan and a nonviolent, nonpartisan and nonviolent protestation. And that we pray that every life that touched ground in D.C. and all across this country, that they shall travel safely and shall have traveling mercy and that there will be no discord, there will be no gunfire, there will be no acts of violence, and that they will leave their homes safely and return to their homes safely. We want to make sure that the message that we as adults are given to the organizers of the March for Our Lives and the program participants are clear that this should be a nonpartisan, nonviolent protestation, one that delivers speeches that uplifts communities and sends a message more than and beyond saving your lives, but telling them why your lives are worth saving, giving them an understanding and a clarity to who you are and why you deem it necessary to make a mark on this generation. 
But you also must do that respectfully. You also must do that in a way that allows for all the world that is watching you to know that this protestation will not impede progress, but will engage participants to move their politicians to demand change through the enactment of legislation that will be enforceable upon any and every corporation or individual who manufactures and or bear arms. The world will be watching you, and so will I. We will all be there to participate in the progress of saving lives and ending gun violence in America. We will ask that each and every one of you support each other's views, even if they differ than yours. That tomorrow, March 24th, will not be a shouting match, but will be a day where everyone is on one accord, regardless of your political, social, or economic backgrounds. And this is very important in recognizing that how gun violence impacts Parkland, Florida, may differ from how it impacts Newark, New Jersey, or New York, New York, or Compton or Long Beach, or Houston or Austin. But at the end of the day, no one's experience will be any different than anyone else's if as a result of gun violence, it ended in death or injury. So regardless of the stories that will be shared, let them be shared respectfully and let and allow for everyone to have a voice and an opportunity to be heard. The lives of Parkland are as precious and valuable as the lives from Chicago, New York, Miami, Florida, Atlanta, Charlotte, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina. Every human being in the United States, directly or indirectly, can relate to the impact of gun violence. And so we want tomorrow, Saturday, March 24th, to be a day of reckoning and a call to action beyond the protestation so that when you leave there tomorrow, there's a new call upon the American people, not just our politicians, but every parent so that every parent who has a child in their home will sit them down and explain to them how to value lives and when and how guns are or are not to be used and whether it is important to have a gun in your home and to understand the origins of the right to bear arms because you are a family. You're not a militia. And the interpretation of the right to bear arms wasn't theoretically meant or to be used in the manner that we even express it today. But nevertheless, everyone should have the right to protect him and herself. And that is a double-edged sword. Because while you tell me that I have that right, you also tell me how I must exercise that right. And when we march for our lives, 
we have to balance that conversation by basically being able to say, you have the right to bear arms, but when your arm adversely impacts other lives, that is problematic. How do we resolve that? Background checks alone won't do it. If you look at the last five shooters, every one of them, from Vegas to Columbine to Texas to Aurora, the movie theater shooting, to the shooting in South Carolina at the church, to Sandy Hook, every single one of them with a background check at that given time because they did not have any criminal acts and there was no documentation regarding their mental state. So every one of them would have passed a background check. So when you demand background checks, what are you looking for? Because the average criminal is not going to buy a gun legally anyway. They're going to get their guns from manufacturers who have and hire individuals to sell them. Alternatively, they will get their guns from legal gun owners who purchase guns in bulk and sell them on the streets. So it is that person that you want to target. It is that individual that you will ask, why did you buy 20 guns at a gun show? And where are each and every one of these guns? And does law enforcement or would law enforcement have the legal right to go into these individuals' homes at any given point in time to make sure that those guns are still in their possession? So if you're purchasing 20 and 30 guns at a gun show so that you could sell them illegally and no one's accounting for those guns, that's a problem. So it's bigger than having an 18 or 19-year-old to have a gun. It's even bigger than a 21-year-old because the last mass shootings, San Bernardino, Las Vegas shooting, and a host of others, the Colorado shooting, all of them were over 21 years of age. So that precursor in and of itself, a prerequisite, excuse me, is not a precursor in and of itself to end gun violence. We have to think bigger and out of the box in an effort to actually devise a plan of action that works. You say, say no to assault weapons. Ask any police officer that was on the force of any major city in the 1970s and the 1980s, and he'll tell you, people did more damage with 23s, 22s, excuse me, 357s, 45s, and that, and that the, um, the other one, the Glock, 40 caliber or 9 millimeters. So it's not simply about having access to assault weapons. It's how do we teach individuals in this country to use, we need to add that to our curriculum. You used to have health education that taught about things that included but were not limited to sex education, physical education. But within that health education class, we can add a curriculum on the value of life, and we can add about issues of suicide and gun violence. That's still part of a health education curriculum. It's not just doesn't have to just be predicated upon sex. There are ways that we can add that to the conversation because at the end of the day, the majority of individuals in the United States who would otherwise purchase a gun will be legally able to do so. And as those individuals that will be the ones that walk into your schools or your supermarkets or your movie theaters and open fire, it is not going to be the criminal on the street. So where individuals are trying to separate the conversation 
between what is happening in urban America versus suburban communities, mass shootings versus gang violence, it's all one and the same. Because the gangs in Chicago get access to their guns from the person who's legally able to purchase the guns in value. And until you determine why and how that person can do it, you're not going to change gun violence in America. And if you simply state and change the age to 21 and prevent them from having criminal records, look at the last 10 gun shootings, mass shootings in America, and you're going to learn that the majority of all of them, eight of them, if I have my numbers correctly, I think only three were under the age of 21. Three were under the age of 21. The rest of them were over the age of 21 and had no criminal record. So history will repeat itself unless we are diligent. With that being said, I want everyone who's participating to have a blessed and safe travel. Regardless of when the United States you to protest, do it in a nonpartisan and a nonviolent forum. Be blessed and be encouraged.